Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Bad Motor GP show. We had a hot weekend in uh, Germany. Who would have thought that this uh, might be possible? But uh, apparently the conditions were uh, much worse than in uh, Catalonia, for example. So, uh, yeah, kind of weird, but it is what it is. And we are here to discuss everything. So, Keelan, you enjoyed the races? Hello, Leo. Who didn't? <laughs> I mean, I can't even say just hello to everybody. Who didn't? It was an unbelievable weekend in Germany. Of course, your native land and a country that I love very much also. Ladies and gentlemen, the action from the Saxon ring was just incredible. Um, just all weekend. I thought it was a brilliant spectacle, as always. Thought uh, the fans showed up and showed out brilliantly. I mean, we had over 100,000 people for Sunday alone for race day. And I think we had close to 300,000 across the whole weekend. So a brilliant um, weekend overall in Germany. Um, even better races. And I'm looking forward to getting into them. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily consider the Sachsenring Mahomes GP because it's the same country, but it's literally on the other side. I would, If I was a rider, I would consider Assen as my home Grand Prix because it's just right around the corner. Um, I will actually go there uh, next week uh, just for the Sunday, uh, wake up early in the morning, uh, hop into the car and like two hours later I'm there. So and also because of uh, all the historical events with Eastern Germany, uh, the eastern part is a little bit weird politically, giving uh, because of the, the upbringings of people. So there are a lot of a uh, lot of um, yeah, I would say disagreements uh, between Western Germany and Eastern Germany and a couple of things. So uh, not to get too political, but it's it's kind of weird, you know. <laughs> but you, you understand if you live here, if not, it's just, it's probably the same with uh, New York and Texas, you know, it's just the same country, but it's completely different, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, but uh, back to the races, uh, we had an incredible performance from Fabio, which was basically a carbon copy of what he did uh, last time out in Catalonia. And uh, he once again, to me, uh, proved that he's the best rider in the world right now. I mean, he was on a track which historically isn't necessarily the best one for the Yamaha. He was kind of surprised that he was uh, third there last year. So good for him. And he was the first winner since Valentino Rossi in 2009, if I remember correctly. Because 10, 11, and 12, Danny Pedrosa won. And from there on, as we all know, it's Mark Marquez. So, uh, yeah, he was incredible. And what really impresses me that he has peak aggression. And on the same, uh, at the same time, he has uh, peak consistency. So I thought about this today. When did Fabio made a mistake in a race the last time? The last time out I can remember was last year in Portimao when he crashed. And this time out, I can't remember that he did a mistake in 2022. And he is super aggressive because he has to. He has, uh, first of all, we have all the issues with the, um, with the front tire pressure, the heat in Germany, which uh, made following another rider rather difficult. And uh, like the big problems of the Yamaha, the straight like we had in Mugello or in Catalonia wasn't the big deal in Germany because it's 
like the shortest track on the calendar and with the shortest uh, straight. So not necessarily a big deal for the Yamaha, but still he put an emphasis on being in front because he had the medium rear tire. He had to be in front uh, to not waste it. And yeah, but um, back to the point, it's really amazing to me that he's so aggressive, but at the same time, he's so consistent. He's, he's like walking, he's, he's rope dancing on the fine line, which is too much aggression, but he's also not too cautious. So it's amazing to me. He uh, is fully, fully uh, on, uh, on a mission to defend his title and, I didn't see it coming, not because I don't trust Fabio, but um, I didn't trust Yamaha. And I was kind of proved right because the Yamaha is still a piece of shit. But Fabio proves me wrong because I didn't expect him to overperform the uh, bike in this way, you know. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing. And he also had this incredible pace without killing his tire. He had the medium rear tire, as I mentioned. Zakra had the hard one. And there were a lot of people who had some issues with the hard uh, because it didn't give them the right feeling. So maybe the medium was the better option. But still, you have to preserve the rear tire like Fabio did. And um, yeah, he he is simply amazing. He combines everything that you need to have uh, in order to win a championship uh, in 2022, he's consistent and uh, he's fast. He's aggressive, which he has to be on the Yamaha. And he um, he makes his life easier by being in front because he doesn't have to overtake. He doesn't have to worry about his front tire pressure. So, yeah, my little Fabio uh, monologue, like what's the opposite of a rant? Yes, that's good. Leave it in the comments if you know, yeah. because I don't. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I mean, you're actually a native speaker, so I have my excuses, but you you need to know. <laughs> yeah, boys, we're in trouble here on the podcast, even <laughs> I don't know what we're meant to say. No, what a brilliant, brilliant performance. Yet, I mean, we're getting used to saying this regularly. A truly spectacular show from Fabio Quadraro once again. It's the story of this race. It's been the story of a lot of races this year. And this year was just another example of Fabio at his very best. Um, like you said, he traverses the line between aggression and caution better than anybody else in the grid. He knows how aggressive he has to be with his bike because it is still a piece of shit. I agree with you. But he makes it work. He makes it work in a way that nobody else can. And Fabio is to Yamaha what Mark Marquez is to Honda. He has a piece of shit bike mostly that only he can make work. No one else that rides that bike can do what he does. And that's a testament to why he's a world champion. And I actually have another interesting statistic for Fabio Quartararo, aside from the brilliant one that you already said. This is Fabio Quartararo's first ever win at an anti-clockwise track. Obviously, with Saxon Ring being an entirely, pretty much an entirely left-handed circuit, which would actually help me. Thanks very much for being considerate, Germany, as you are. Um, it was great for Fabio, and he made it work brilliantly. Um, I think he stuck, if I'm not wrong, did he stick? I think he stuck with the medium rear tire at the start of the race, and he used it to a T. He really did. And it's another point that you mentioned there, Leo, and an excellent point at that. 
His ability to manage tires is second to none on the grid. He always seems to make the right choice and he always seems to get the most out of them. And that's that smooth flowing style that he has and that is his own. And that's not even talking about the race itself in which he was brilliant. You know, he got out in front, put that pressure on Paco Banyaya and Paco just couldn't deal with it. I mean, Paco had a great weekend. He obviously broke the pole um, record for Germany, but he just couldn't keep up with him. And when he tried to take it a bit too far, his bike folded on him. And again, that's him out in yet another race, which I didn't think I would be saying, but here we are. Overall, incredible, incredible, incredible performance from Fabio Quattararo. He was fast, he was aggressive, he was bold, and he was brilliant. Yeah, uh, I believe part of the reason that Fabio um, didn't win on anti-clockwise uh, circuits before was uh, that Marc Marcus won all of them. So <laughs> nobody wins uh, on uh, um, on anti-clockwise uh, circuits. So it is what it is. You got to deal with it and take your opportunity mm -hmm. when uh, Marc Marcus is injured. No, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, he makes everybody on the grid look stupid, especially the other uh, the other Yamaha riders, because when you want to be fast on the Sachsen ring, you have to have a good feeling to the front. And I mentioned this previously that I believe that um, Frankie has some issues with the front end feeling because Fabio is super aggressive on the brakes and that's where he makes up his time. And... Um, Yeah, Frankie doesn't. So I uh, I believe that there is an issue and also the big issue with the engine, which wasn't necessarily a factor in Germany and the turning was good. So he made it work and um, he has some kind of ability to be fast at the beginning of the race without killing his, uh, his tire. And the Yamaha famously has some issues with uh, rear grip. I mean, yes, it's power, but on the other side, it's also to bring the power that you have onto the road. So, um, yeah, uh, he does it. I don't know how. Probably all the other Yamaha riders don't know either. So uh, we're not alone here. But yeah, the way with his pace and his aggress uh, aggression, how he broke Peko basically, which was a weird crash. I mean, I can't remember a crash where the rear goes so slowly. I mean, it, you could literally watch it while it was happening in real time. And usually when you have uh, crashes of the rear, it snaps and um, you get high-sided or low-sided, but it comes usually really fast. And um, it was also in a weird spot because he... It felt like he braked a little bit too late, but not necessarily, um, not necessarily too much that it became a problem. But uh, it looked like to me he was slightly offline, and then when he opened the throttle, maybe there was an area on the track where the grip wasn't as high because he was slightly uh, further out. I don't know. Um, yeah, probably only Peko can answer that, so um, we have to ask him. But uh, yeah, it was also uh, weird because the rear didn't snap like usual on uh, on crashes where the rear goes. So 
luckily for him that he didn't get injured, of course, but also quite weird to explain because it was so slow. And the rear immediately got, was gone when he uh, opened the throttle. There was an onboard where um, where you can uh, watch the throttle on the right-hand side on um, on a screen. And when he opened the throttle, like slightly, the, the green bar was like a centimeter or whatever depends on your screen uh <laughs> how big it is but yeah it was was a fraction of full power and it immediately went maybe he was uh, had a little bit more lean angle on a um on an area of the track where the grip wasn't as high maybe it was just uh i believe he had the hard uh, rear tire maybe it was just this i don't know or maybe it was just fabio um beating him into the first corner like two times in a row and he thought damn i have to uh, put him under pressure to um to have a better pace towards the end so yeah but uh this can't happen because peko effectively threw his season away it was like a very 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 slim chance nearly impossible uh, after catalonia because to, through no fault of his own, he got taken out. But yeah, now uh, I would say it's completely impossible because even when Fabio makes like one or two mistakes, he's still 40 points down. And Fabio doesn't make mistakes as we covered. So it's, uh, it's uh, definitely an area that he has to work on because you have to be consistent in modern MotoGP. You can't expect to crash out like three times or four times and uh, compete for a championship because everybody's competitive, everybody's good. And um, yeah, you want two races, but if you crash in three races, there's no way uh, you uh, you compete for a title. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to disagree with pretty much anything you've said there, Leo. Um I'll talk about the crash first and then move on to what it actually means for Peko, both in the immediate and the longer term. Um, it was a really strange crash. There's no, there's no two ways about that. It was a very, very strange, slow crash that, like you said, you could, you could see it in real time. I mean, most crashes are normally a millisecond ahead of what you can see, and then you see the impact of it. But this one, you could see it happening as you were watching it, which is just so strange. And the rear tire just gave out on him in such a weird position as well, because it wasn't fully on the entry to the corner and it wasn't fully on the exit of the corner either. It was like a really weird one in a million spot of the turn where it just gave way for no apparent reason. But I do think if I had to if I had to hedge my bets and give my best guess as to why Peko did it, I think he maybe slightly overshot the entry to the corner trying to keep up with Fabio. I mean, even though the Ducati turns way better, it still can't corner the way that the Yamaha does, especially Fabio's Yamaha. And I think Peko was so desperate to get ahead of Fabio that he tried to copy his racing line. And I think he just completely overshot it, tried to get it back, and the bike wouldn't let him. That's just my guess. That's all I can speculate on. But it's ended up costing him massively. It's ended up costing him... I think it cost him potentially 20 points because I don't think he would have won anyway. I just think Fabio was too good for everybody on the track today. But... 
you know, when you're throwing away potential second, third, even fourth places that can help you win a title, it's maybe the sign that you're not ready to win the title yet because Fabio's realized that it's okay to finish second. It's okay to finish third. It's much more important to bank the points and move on to the next race than go all out trying to stupidly win the unwinnable. And I think with Paco, his ego got a little bit ahead of him today and that's what cost him. But it is what it is. He's going to have to move on from it. And I do think... I don't think it's completely impossible that he comes back, but I do think that's the championship season over for him. I think there's Ducatis that are more consistent now, which is a problem. And I think there's other riders, like especially Aprilia as a manufacturer who we'll get onto later, who are showing much more consistency in every race. And that's going to be a big issue for Peko. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's not much more you can say about it. I feel sorry for Paco, but he, it, it, these are his mistakes, you know. He he should know at this point that there's no point trying to shoot in on someone else's line and try and win the unwinnable. You have to race your race, take the points and move on. And even worse now for Paco, you, um, you alluded to this already, we are now going to the worst possible track to try and win points off of Fabio Quartararo because we're going to Assen next. And if God himself designed a racetrack, he couldn't have designed it any better for a Yamaha. It's a beautiful, flat, open, flowing track, which is one of my favorite on the calendar by a mile. And Fabio is going to be the dominant favorite to win that race. That's another 25 points. That's another deficit um between him and Paco and overall I just think Paco is going to rue this season as the season of missed chances and blown opportunities I feel sorry for him on a level don't get me wrong because the pressure of factory Ducati is tremendous but at the end of the day Leo you know only he can ride that bike the team can't ride it for him the team directors can't ride it for him only Francesco Bagnaia can ride that bike. And unfortunately, he just hasn't been as good at it as Fabio Quartararo. Yeah, and uh, let's hope he learns from it because it's an area where he has to improve. I thought that it was something that he took away from last season. But I mean, it's easier said than done. But uh, it's possible, as we've seen with many riders, that uh, you can be, uh, you can learn how to be consistent. And also, maybe it was just the rear tire, that the hard rear tire wasn't necessarily the best choice. Because Joan Zacco, there was a point, uh, like, at the beginning, but towards the middle of the race, like one third down, where um, he had, like, 1.3, 1.4 seconds uh, to Fabio and uh, was in second. And he also has the uh, hard rear tire. So I thought okay, maybe now it's the time where Juan Zarco can uh, cut a 10th here, a 10th uh, there, and make Fabio's life a little bit more difficult. But he couldn't. And uh, he had, like, what was it? Five seconds towards the end? I think it was like 5.7 seconds or something like that. It was a mammoth, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, 4.9, so I wasn't necessarily completely wrong. But... Well, it, was, it was pretty much a five-second yeah, gap. Five second. And, and Fabio took the majority of this five-second uh, lead 
towards the end of the race or like the middle of the race you know and this is impressive to me so yeah um i don't know if the heart wasn't the best option because uh zako was like in the best position you can or not the best the best is the lead but if fabio wasn't lead zako was in the best position to catch him which was a second with a second down and two-thirds of the race left and he didn't and fabio uh took him to school so could be and also um john zako was very very aggressive towards uh, aleish on yeah it's it's a difficult topic to de discuss because on one hand it was a very spectacular overtake and you love to see it especially in modern moto gp where you don't have these close battles anymore sadly and um on the other hand this isn't uh uh a spot on the track where you should overtake because it's one of the fastest areas on the track where you are uh in the right hand corner for the first time since whatever turn three i believe and um yeah you go down the hill it's extremely dangerous in itself and uh, zarko bumped into a leash and yeah he he threw caution to the wind and said okay either this works or you crash or we both crash and it's difficult because let's say hypothetically a leash crashed there you would have uh, had a real problem with Joan Zarco uh, and uh, said, like, how could you overtake there? And there's this fine line where you want to encourage people to overtake. It would be wrong to penalize him for that. Of, don't get me wrong. Um, but I, would, I wouldn't necessarily encourage riders to uh, make overtakes like these when literally the next corner is one of the overtaking hotspots. I would, yeah... It's like very, very difficult uh, to me because this easily could have uh, gone wrong in one of the uh, most dangerous areas of the track. Yeah, you're right. It's um, it's a very, when it comes to the Saxon ring, it's a real gray area. Uh, basically, was Johann Zarko right or was he wrong? I lean towards it being right for a couple of different reasons, most of which you've already outlined. I think with Johan Zarko, he's generally someone you can trust to overtake safely. He's not like if it was Takaki Nakagami, for example, I think we would have been having a different discussion, you know, both humorously and not, because I don't know if I would trust him to do it safely enough. But to Johan Zarko's credit, he's he generally doesn't take other people out with him when he tries overtakes especially the spectacular ones. And what a brilliant overtake it was, by the way. He did bump into LH, I do admit, but it was brilliant viewing, I have to say, and he did do a brilliant job of it. Personally, I think the fact that it was the turn just before the turning zone, I think that's what actually made it really good. The fact that it was at an area where you normally wouldn't overtake actually made it better in some respects. Because if we, if we only encourage riders to turn in tra traditional overtaking areas, then races can become boring and too anticipatory. You know, riders are just going to hold on to certain areas and then we're going to expect overtakes in, say, turns 1, 4, 7, 11 and 13. Whereas we want riders who are willing to take the risks and willing to overtake at any opportunity they can safely find. 
Um, I do agree with you, though. If there had been a crash, I think there would have been a different discussion about this, and Zarko would have been penalised probably heavily. But I think the fact that he was able to pull it off successfully and not endanger his opponent, I actually think that makes it a pretty brilliant overtake. And I thought it was very smart the way he did it as well, going around the outside instead of just going straight through the inside. I actually liked the way Zarko approached it. So I think it's a great question you ask, and I'd love to hear other people's thoughts about this as well. But for me, I thought it was okay. Yeah, it was okay, and the results uh, proved him right. All I'm saying is, was it completely necessarily? No, could have been. Uh, could have. Could it have have been uh, worse for Elage? Yes, because I don't believe motorcycle racing should be a contact sport, and you should be able to overtake without having contact because you're always putting another human being's uh, health uh, on on the line. I mean, let's say hypothetically, Aleish uh, crashed there. It was a very, very fast uh, um, section of the track on the exit of the corner on the curb down the hill. Like when he crashes there, he goes uh, through the gravel and we've seen crashes from Paul Espargaro in Valencia last year or uh, Jorge Martin in Portimao, those crashes where you uh, get thrown through the uh, gravel trap usually don't end very well for a rider with multiple broken bones. And yeah, it's it kind of, kind of rubbed me the wrong way while watching it. But I have to admit, it was spectac- spectacular. The results proved him right, so I wouldn't penalize him for that. I would, maybe if I'm a resurrection, I would say, Look, John, I know you did nothing wrong there, but I wouldn't necessarily advise you to do it uh, again because this could have been um, gone wrong easily. And if it had been gone wrong, uh, we would have penalized you. But on the other hand, race direction, penalize racing incidents in Moto3 and dive bombs in uh, MotoGP don't get penalized. And yeah, so it's like the old discussion is the penalizing system a consistent and b do you want to punish the outcome or do you want to punish the crime and i i'm not saying by any means that uh, zako deserved what a long lap or whatever for this because if you would have penalized him for this uh, it would um in this encourage discourage people yeah discourage people from uh, trying overtakes and it's not what we want but all i'm saying is that i would have expected from a professional uh, motorcycle racer who's a two-time world champion to be able to overtake a without bumping into your opponent and risking his health because what if he crashed i mean that's a very valid question to ask you know and um yeah, if I'm race direction, I would have probably said to him, hey, look, John, good job. You made the right decision in this moment, but um, maybe this shouldn't be the standard of overtaking, you know? Because yeah, he was... I... Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, I just uh, would like to... When you're on the Saxon and you have like these, I believe it was turn 11, the waterfall where you go down the hill, you have like what is it, eight turns, uh, eight left-hand turns, so the right uh, tire is pretty cold. 
And it's a very fast corner where you go down the hill into turn 12, which is a heavy braking area, heavy in terms of flexing ring heavy, um, where you can overtake. And Joan could have set the overtake up where he uh, gained on Alege due to his uh, superior corner speed there and um, set him up properly to overtake uh, into turn 12. And yeah, he he was faster there. Alej admitted that he had no uh, pace at all. It was just surviving for him. So I can understand why you would uh, like to get past him. And he was setting the overtake up like on the outside of the left-hand corners. And as soon as the turn, uh, as soon as the um, as the turn uh, was there, the right the track flicked pretty much underneath them and the right turn was there he was in a good position to stick the bike up the inside and like i said fair to him good overtake very spectacular good job but it could have gone wrong easily you know yeah it could have and i'm certainly not taking away from that point because it's a very valid point i mean like like we've said before the crashes and the fatalities that we've seen justified concern i'm certainly not saying they don't the problem is is that it's it's you can't you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't there's there's an equally good argument on either side and the problem is among many you've just mentioned there and you're absolutely correct is that you johan zarko is a two-time world champion is anybody in race direction qualified to tell him when to overtake and when not to because that's the argument Johan Zarco is going to use. He's going to say, now, Johan Zarco is a gentleman. I'm not saying he would be intentionally combative, but he would be justified in doing so. Because someone like Johan Zarco is going to turn around and say, I'm a two-time world champion. I've been doing this for most of my life. Who the hell are you to tell me when to overtake and when not to? And I do think we need to earn the sort of caution of telling riders when to do what they know to do and when not to. I think there's a real risk of racing then becoming meaningless and almost without any sort of cause at all. I think to sort of sum up where I'm coming from in this, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. I don't, I think both sides are equally as valid as the other. The problem is, is that yes, it's a fast turn. It's the fastest part of the track. It's a what 180, 200 mile an hour straight on the track going down into the waterfall section the problem is, if you're not going to trust someone like Johan Zarko to do that turn and to let him race, then who are you going to trust to do it? That's the problem. And at the end of the day, we're all here and we're all fans of the sport because these guys are the best in the world at what they do. It's like, for example, um, in, to, give it, to give it the best sort of comparison that I can, in MMA, you don't tell Israel Adesanya when he's allowed to throw an elbow or when he's not to. Or in basketball, for example, no one would tell Michael Jordan when to try and dunk and when not to. At some point, you have to trust the people out in the track to do what they know to do and to do it safely. So I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying I disagree with that side because I think it's valid, but we do need to we do need to allow the riders freedom and conscionability to make the right decision as well before enforcing anything on them. That's just the side that I come from on it. Yeah, I totally agree with you that 
it would be wrong to penalize him for that because he would discourage overtakes if you uh, consistently enforce penalties for overtakes which are dangerous but where nothing happens but my problem with the overtake is that they touched basically that's the issue that i have because it could have been gone wrong easily and for example we talked about fabio he had an overtake uh, where uh, he uh, bumped into peco but i don't see this as an uh, as the same magnitude if you want to um, because it was turn one let's say peco crashed it would be a low side sucks for him but he won't be any damage it's it's different if you're going 200 kilometers an hour down the hill or 100 uh, in turn one that's basically what i'm saying and i completely uh hear you completely agree with you that uh it would be wrong a to penalize him and b that you have to trust the athletes because everybody on the grid knows the risk alesh is there because he wants to be there nobody's forcing him and if alesh uh, decides that motorcycle racing is too dangerous for him he will um he will uh, retire but that on the other hand doesn't mean that you can be reckless and yeah my only issue is that he uh touched Alesh, and uh i don't think this is necessary at this part of the track and um i wouldn't penalize him for that i would just like have a little talk with him and say hey come on man you can do better than that yeah, I think if there had been anything further, like even if there had, even if there had been like a really bad wobble or something, not even just a crash, if there had been a slightly less severe impact, like a leash losing balance or something like that, then yes, I would, I would pretty much be in agreement with that because people forget how fast and dangerous that part of the track is. I'm certainly not denying that. If there had been a crash, I mean, that would have been horrendous for anybody if there had been a crash, because that's the fastest part of the track. But I think I think the reason, like you said, we're discussing this is because there was there was contact, albeit brief. And that that immediately makes us think of the worst case scenario of what could have been. Thankfully, though, I trust Johan and Aleish to know what to do and to generally race the best that they can. If there'd been a crash, I would have absolutely agreed, and we're probably having a much more serious discussion on this. I think, though, the fact that they're two of the safest riders on the track generally, I trust them, and I think they both handled it exceptionally well um, in the moment, of course, on the track. For me, there's nothing much to it. Um, maybe some more awareness from Johan, yes. But in terms of uh, anybody calling for punishment or anything like that, absolutely not. Yeah. So uh, I would like to move on to Jack Miller. Sadly, he didn't win the race uh, because the last two riders who got fired, or at least uh, Jorge Lorenzo and uh, Andrea Dovizioso, uh, won their uh, next race after got, they got fired. Danilo Petrucci, not as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, very good race for him uh, with the long lap. Uh, Peko almost uh, took out the other Ducati because uh, apparently there was a little bit of gravel on the, um, on the long lap. But yeah, Jack Miller, very, very decent race. Can't really complain. And um, yeah, with the other Ducati riders... Martin is very solid after the uh, surgery. He had this nerve damage and after Catalonia he got uh, surgery there. So it appears to be better 
I don't know, but I believe that uh, we would have known if there was like a major issue, because in these conditions, when you ha when you aren't completely fit, you're fucked, and that's why uh, guys like Alej cycle 300 kilometers a day, and uh, Fabio runs every morning. Uh, you know, you have to be fit in order to race in these conditions, and that's why they are professional athletes. You know, and um, yeah. I would uh, necessary wouldn't necessarily go into detail with every Ducati rider because it would just uh, blow up in our faces and we would sit here tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> quickly, uh, Marini he was very uh, impressive. It's like three top six finishes. Uh, very good to all the people who say he's just there because of his brother. Maybe you're partly right. Maybe he kind of proves you wrong, and you should uh, more look at Alex Marcus. Um, wink wink and uh yeah he's he's developing very very good and this shows to me why it's important to give rookies at least two or three seasons because he was a title contender in model 2 he earned his uh, spot in model gp last year he was very consistent but wasn't very fast but he showed some promise towards the end but it wasn't necessarily the most spectacular rookie season which is uh, very spectacular to me, is that he finished every race. He never DNF'd once. And uh, this is important. A, for yourself as a, as a rider, because uh, it's, uh, it sucks to crash and there's always this big risk of injury. And also you, uh, you get a lot of time on the bike, which is in MotoGP pretty limited, and you can improve better when you are on the bike. And yeah, so... Uh, yeah, congratulations to him he shows promise and uh very good excited to see him in the future and uh yeah bastianini disappoints his crew chief uh wasn't there with uh COVID. i mean he had he had a good race uh, considering where he came from but a rider who has aspirations to go into the factory team uh, needs to be in the top five period i mean martin wasn't too so what are we talking about but yeah Enea needs to do better, but that's that's just his season. He's very inconsistent. Either he wins or he crashes or he's nowhere. It's not like he's somebody who's on the podium occasionally and in the top five occasionally and wins a race occasionally. He's either brilliant or he's uh yeah, not so good. Yeah, um, I'll just say a quick word about them before they move before we move on. Um Luca Marini's opportunity in the Premier class may have come a little bit quicker because of Valentino, I admit that, but he's staying there on his own merit, and he is bloody brilliant on that bike as well, might I add. Uh, like you said, he, he, he's finished every single race, which is a credit to him, and to get P5 today, I think is genuinely fantastic. I think it's a brilliant result for Marini and that VR46 team as well. Um, shout out Marco Bezzecchi, P11 as well. Thought he had a good race as well, uh, considering where he came from. Um, yeah, Marini's maturing and developing brilliantly, and it is everything you just said. You have to give rookies time on the bike for them to get better. There is no other way. It's not like a magic beanstalk where you can just water it and you wake up one morning and you have a world champion rider. You've got to give them time and let them ride the thing. And Marini's been in the Premier class now for, what, two, three seasons? And he is really starting to... Two seasons, yes. 
his first season he struggled because he's Marini's a bit like me. He's really tall. So he was struggling to get to grips with the bike. It felt really awkward and he was kind of slow, as you said. But this year he looks so much better. And this is what happens when you give guys time on the bike. They mold around it. They develop around it. It's like I think Raul and Remy, the same will apply to them if they're given more time, which I absolutely think they should. Um, so overall, massive congrats to Luca Marini. As for Enea Bastianini, it's like you said, Leo, he's either win it or bin it. That's pretty much him. He, he's he's one or he's the other. Um, overall, I thought he did well to get back to P10 from P14, P15. He managed to stay in the bike, get a top 10, and that's good. But if you want to be factory Ducati, like you said, you've really got to be top five every single race. And he just isn't at the moment. So it's interesting to see where he goes from there. But big congrats to Luca Marini. Yeah. Uh, regarding Remy and Raul, I would like to add uh, a little sentence, uh, which is that to me, it's uh, embarrassing for KTM that there are even talks that Remy and Raul won't keep their seat because They are amazing. You know, I love Remy. You know, I have my problems with Raul because of his antics off track and how he handled the whole championship situation uh, last year. But this motherfucker can race. And Marini is literally the best example. You need to give those people time. Aprilia did it with Maverick. Like, okay, Maverick has a lot more experience. But you could have argued, okay, you had like... Uh, a little bit last uh, year and this year uh, wasn't necessarily uh, the most successful time of uh, Maverick Vinales uh, with Aprilia, but he's getting into his own. Maverick had a brilliant race. And I like Aprilia because they give A, their riders, uh, their riders what they deserve. Maverick deserves another two seasons because he's um, one of the most talented riders on the grid. And uh, if he can put it together, which he did today, I mean, it sucked for him that the rear right hand device got stuck, but he wasn't he wasn't actually mad because he was so happy that he um, that he was competing for a podium. And I believe that if he didn't have this uh, had this issue, that he would have been uh, on the podium because Aleish had no pace. And he seemed all the time that uh, he was uh, faster than him. And honestly, I uh, don't see Jack Miller uh, catching up to uh, Maverick when he uh, passes him. And overtaking is uh, another. You can catch up uh, to somebody, but um, to overtake somebody then is another challenge in itself, especially on the Saxon ring, especially uh, in modern MotoGP, you know? So I actually believe that Maverick would have been on the podium and yeah, he didn't suck for him. It could have happened in any race and it, uh, it happened in his best race. Very sad, but to take away the positives, he was competing for a podium. He should be better in Assen, a track that historically suits him. I was there in 2019, attended the race live where he beat uh, Mark Marcus for the victory on the Yamaha in Mark Marcus' best season. I mean, Asen isn't necessarily his best track, but yeah, Maverick is good there. That's all I want to say. Last year, he was second, I believe, and uh, it's positive for him. And who would have thought last year that Maverick made the best decision of his career by overraving the Yamaha and getting the fuck out of there? Imagine him being another uh, another year on this shitty bike. Let the other riders have the problem with this uh, piece of shit. And 
let uh, Maverick enjoy his time at Aprilia because he seems happy. He seems um, like he's making progress and it seems like he's a good team player because on the broadcast, uh, Simon Crafer said that uh, the rear right height device is basically a manual one where Aleish has it on the bike and has to press a button for the rear to come down and uh, Maverick is testing an automatic one. So basically he's sacrificing his own race because uh, it, it's still a de developmental job just to improve the bike, which is I rate really highly because he could have just said, no, I want the same that Aleish, I want to beat him, fuck you. But he didn't. He's a team player. He uh, understands that uh, Aleish is fighting for a championship and uh, he's not. And he understands that this will benefit him in the long term. So, um, yeah, very happy for Maverick. I mean, very, very, very impressive race. And it's it makes me happy to see him come into his own. A, because he's a very talented rider and it hurts to see such a talent getting wasted. Thanks, Yamaha. And uh, the second part is that uh, I'm happy for Aprilia, I'm happy for Aleish, and him personally too, because he seems like a very nice guy. Yeah, couldn't agree anymore, and that is the truth. Um, I thought Aprilia overall had a fantastic weekend, and what a campaign they're having, by the way. I'm delighted for Massimo Rivola and that whole team, because they are doing brilliantly, and they deserve a hell of a lot of credit for the job they're doing. I'm going to talk about Maverick first because I think that makes the most sense to pick up where you left off. Um, I'm delighted to see him happy again. Um, I can't remember the last time I saw Maverick Vinales truly beaming with a smile on his face. And it's clear that he loves Aprilia and he loves being there and he loves being teammates with Alicia Spargo. And you're right about the race as well. He was brilliant and he was on podium pace. Um, I don't think Miller or Aleish would have touched him if he'd have stayed on the track. But as you said about the rear height device, unfortunately, it did crap out on him. And that's what um, that's what cost him the race. From what I understand, it's very similar to what you said. Apparently, um, apparently Aprilia are developing a semi-automatic rear height device. And that's what Maverick had on his bike, as opposed to the manual on Alicia's bike, and that's, of course, what went on him. But credit to him, he was brilliant, and I don't think I've ever seen somebody who had to pull into the pits and actually look at peace with themselves. And Maverick did. Um, it speaks a lot to the Aprilia project and the people around him, but I'm delighted for him. I mean, we, um, we climbed around a lot at the beginning of the season with Maverick, but that's only because we knew how good he is and the potential that he has. And from Asin onwards, I can see I can see that podium prediction form that you said really starting to come to fruition because his confidence is as high as I've ever seen it. And like you said as well, even on the um, if he'd have had to spend one more year in the Yamaha, he probably would have done a repeat of Austria, but he would have finished the job and just joined the bike in the fence with it. Um, but thankfully, that's not happening. We're staying positive over here. Uh, and overall, I'm really, really happy for Maverick Vinales. He seems happy. He's he's doing great work on his bike. And yeah, congratulations to him. And congrats to Aleish as well for the P4. Um, he had a great weekend all around. My only concern for Aleish Spargo, though, was we're on the topic, is this. 
he's slowing up traffic when he gets into P2 or P3 and he needs to start pushing the pace a little bit more. Whenever Fabio was out in front and Alicia was in second, the gap to Fabio was starting to open and open and open and open. And that I actually think that's what led to Zarco doing the move that he did on Alicia. I think the frustration was building with Alicia not pushing on and actually going quicker. My, that's literally my only criticism of Alicia. I think when he finds himself in these positions of P2, P3, push onwards and explore that pace more because you have the pace to do it. I think Alicia is a little bit too conservative, but when he loses that, he will win more races. But overall, congrats to Aprilia. Yeah, I mean, two things. First, uh, my podium prediction was uh, that Alicia wins a race and Maverick don't, uh, doesn't score a podium. So he kind of uh, almost uh, proved me wrong. but Thank God yeah. he didn't finish. <laughs> stayed. No, I hope he w proves me wrong, but stayed now, I'm happy. Um, uh, I'm correct, and uh, but I'm happy if he, uh, he scores a podium because I like the guy. And yeah, regarding Aleish, I mean, if he said after the race that basically he was trying to not crash all the time during the whole race because it was so difficult for him. And what do you want him to do? Push and crash or be conservative and uh, hold up maybe traffic, which isn't his business. It's his pace. If you want to go faster, overtake him. But well, Sarko did. Yeah, but please do it safely. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, what do you want him to do? Crash? I mean, if this is his pace, it's his pace. And because of his approach, he's second in the world championship. It is what it is. And if the pace is there, we've seen that he's uh, willing to uh, willing to push. He did it in Jerez, for example. He did it in, um, here in Argentina. And he kind of did it in Barcelona. So why not? I mean, I don't see the issue. And yeah, I mean, um, the Aprilia in general, I believe, has an overtaking problem because... Uh, it seemed to me that Maverick was faster the whole time, but he couldn't get past Aleish. There were many occasions where Aleish uh, couldn't get past uh, um, past other riders in uh, previous races. So maybe, first of all, yes, everybody has these issues. That's the big issue in MotoGP right now. But uh, it seems like Aprilia has it a little bit more than, for example, Fabio, because... Fabio is, yes, he's very aggressive and he uh, he pushes uh, his Yamaha to the limits, but he overtakes people more regularly, I would say. Um, then the Aprilia, so this is maybe something something they have to get uh, have to get fixed. But I mean, he's second in the world championship. He picked up another um, another very uh, valuable uh, fourth position because it's what it was easy to crash or it was easy to uh, DNF. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't criticize him for this. And yeah, moving on, um, I would like to talk about Honda because Honda had a rather strange weekend because uh, they came to the track where they won the last, what was it, 10 races mm -hmm. or... 11 or Actually, whatever. Allowed the last 12 or so because Danny Pedrosa won two yeah, of them yeah. as well as Mark. Yeah. But they won a little bit there. So uh, that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> and um, Mark Marcus wasn't there, obviously. And the question is, would, have, uh, would he uh, win if he was there? Because the Honda has some 
big, big, big problems with two things. A, front end feeling, and B, in the heat, the bike doesn't work at all. And you need front end feeling at the Saxon ring. And it was fucking hot. So I don't necessarily know if uh, Mark Marcus would have been able to compete with uh, Fabio. Maybe he would have. Who knows? I mean, if somebody uh, can win at the Saxon ring, it's Mark Marcus. So, yeah, but that's a hypothetical discussion. But I want to get uh, to the point of, um, of Paul. He had some pain with the ribs and he said he was feeling dizzy and uh, pulled up into the pits. Because it's better to give up than to crash and uh, injure yourself even more. And uh, Alex Marcus had a technical issue with uh, the rear device too, I believe. So he had to give up as well. Tucker crashed. Okay, it's Tucker. And it's, yeah, you know. Um, We discussed this Last time out after Barcelona, he is on his way to become the Honda test rider, in my opinion. Because the Honda test rider didn't crash, yes, but I've heard there's no uh, actual confirmation because I don't have the lap times in front of me um, and I didn't have the time to check that uh, there were some laps uh, that Stefan Bradl did, which was slower than the Moto2. If this is indeed true, this is a disaster. And he said that it was simply too hot. He uh, burned his foot, he burned his hand, and he thought of giving up because it, there was no point there. And I would have agreed if it was any other rider than Stefan Radl because he's literally the test rider. You don't uh, need to be there to, um, to finish in the top 10. You need to, to be there to develop the shitty bike and you only can develop it if you ride it. So good decision to stay on the bike and finish the race even it was uh rather difficult for him but uh, yeah it was a very very strange weekend for honda because they had uh three dnfs with two being uh yeah technical injury and uh crash i don't know it it was a rather strange you know and stefan radl the only one who finished uh, didn't score a point and was like what was he, 20 seconds behind Remy or whatever? Let me check. Yeah, he was 22 seconds behind Remy. And yeah, so Remy was right behind Andrea Dovizioso and Frankie Mobidelli. So basically he was 30 seconds of uh, the group in front uh, pushing uh, to, for the last uh, points. So yeah, uh, Honda is a disaster right now. And I don't know what uh, they what they can do but yeah it's it's very very strange it's kind of funny because honda is pretty arrogant because of all of their success so uh yeah sucks when marcus doesn't bail you out but they also said that the bike has a lot of potential they just need to unlock the potential yeah kdm has a lot of potential as well but still the bike's a piece of shit so yeah um, I don't know what's going on in Honda. It was a really strange weekend and they have to uh, fix the front-end feeling because basically uh, you need to have front-end feeling to be, uh, to be good and uh, you need to make your bike work in the hotter conditions because literally half the season is during the summer. 
I'll tell you what, Honda are going to kick themselves when they find out about global warming and seasons, Leo. I mean, Jesus Christ, how does your bike not work in half of the normal weather conditions? What is going on? Um, but yeah, you make a really good point, obviously, with Honda. They are in a mess right now. And I actually have the second funny statistic of the episode for you. That is right. Yes, I do. Usually you get one every two or three episodes. This episode, you get two and one. That's kind of how we roll here. This is the first time that Honda have not scored a single point in a Grand Prix race since 1982. That is how long, that is how long it has been since the Honda team have not scored a single point in a Grand Prix race. Shout out Everything Moto Racing for the statistic. They posted it earlier, but it is shocking. It really is. That is about 17,000 days in between 1982 and 2022, which is what, 82, 92, 30 years since you you last didn't score a point in a race. The point that I'm making with this, Leo, is that Honda are in shit. They are in deep, deep, deep shit, basically, um, you know, I don't I don't even know where to start with Honda. You know, Alex Marquez DNF'd again, Nakagami DNF'd again. Paulo Spargo has a little bit of an excuse because he had that horrible high side on Friday. You know, he's got a rib injury. I can forgive that because that was a horrible crash that he went through and he went rolling through the gravel trap. You know, how he even got up is impressive. But what concerns me the most is actually the one rider who actually managed to finish the race, which is, of course, Stefan Bradl. Stefan Bradl during that race, because I was, of course, watching the BT broadcast earlier, there was a lap, I can't remember, I think it was around lap 10, and the commentary team said that Stefan Bradl was running 124s, which is Moto2 times at that track today. That is beyond unforgivable, no matter what way you slice it. And towards the end of last season, or around halfway through, I remember there was a race, I think it was Le Mans in the wet, where Valentino was doing World Superbike level times, and people were ripping him for it. Why aren't they ripping Honda for this? Because that is unacceptable, regardless of who is on that bike. I mean, Stefan Bradl is a world champion. He's that caliber rider. And to finish 22 seconds behind a, a rookie, an injured rookie at that, it's unforgivable, Leo. It really, really is. And these are the people, you know, this is, this is the Honda Racing Corporation. These are the people who think they're the best thing ever. These are the people who were so narrow-minded that they didn't put in any fail-safe in case shock Mark Marquez might get injured. What Mark Marquez's injuries have shown are the massive cracks and fault lines in HRC because there's not one rider there good enough to pick up any of the slack at all. And don't get me wrong, I don't criticize Alex Marquez or anything, but realistically, like we said last episode, he's there because of Mark. Let's just be truthful about it. He was bumped up into Repsol way too early. He's, he's not deserving of being in... Uh, the LCR team, Nakagami's on his way out. Paul uh, has just had a bit of a really tough spell ever since he's been at Honda. <laughs> and overall, they're in massive, massive trouble. 
they might have to get a wild card from World Superbike to try and get any kind of traction. And that tells you how bad they are in it, Leo. I'm serious. I mean, they might have to get an Iker Laquona or someone like that to try and get some momentum on the board because their MotoGP boys just are not doing the business at all. Yeah, I mean, uh, what do you want to expect from Ika? I mean, he hasn't ridden the bike ever to get in there and uh, be fast. I uh, spot on. But no, uh, Honda has been in the shit for, I would say, like the last five to six years. Yes. Because uh, take out Mark Marquez. When was the last time Danny Pedrosa was really competitive? When was the last time that any customer uh, Honda was really competitive? I I mean, Cal Crutchler had like a couple of good races, but uh, necessarily it was occasionally, let's say, occasionally good. But yeah, Honda has been in the shit since uh, like five or six years when you take out Mark Marquez. And from the moment you took him out because he was injured, they were fucking bad. So yeah, and I mean, Alex Marquez, he is a two-time world champion. He he got promoted to Repsol as the reigning Moto2 world champion, which was fine to me at the time, and he did a really good, a good job. But the inability to A, develop, and B, the inability of Honda to develop him um, a bike which works for him and every other rider's, is basically a disaster. If you're the biggest motorcycle manufacturer in the world, you're the most successful historically, and you can't even build a motorcycle which beats a KTM, what are we doing? I mean, the Moto2 race had like two laps, two laps less than the MotoGP race, probably. I don't know. Yeah, and um, it would be interesting to see how fast Rolf Fernandez over the race distance in MotoGP would have been. So if you put like two or three uh, laps on uh, on his time, where would he finish? Would he finished above Stefan Barrel or behind? And if indeed he would have finished above, this is maybe some kind of uh, calculation I can do uh, tomorrow or whatever. So um, yeah. Um, if he indeed would have finished ahead of Stefan Bradl, this would have would be a disaster. It would be embarrassing. Basically, just kill yourself at this point because you ain't cutting it. You know, <laughs> this this is fucking embarrassing because you can compare these two races because they literally happened at the same track at the same time, like two, one and a half hours apart. The conditions can't be uh, more similar, you know? And, yeah. Yeah, it's the perfect controlled science experiment. It's the same conditions, the same track, the same weather. You know, it's not like we were in Le Mans where the weather can change from one minute to the next. The temperature was practically exactly the same for each race. There's no excuse. And I mean, I don't know if I go so far necessarily as telling Honda they should kill themselves, but they're not far off. They really aren't. They are at a point where they are cataclysmically deep in trouble. They really are. And the thing is that 
it's not even necessarily that they're in trouble with Mark being injured, which they are. It's that they, they don't have anybody else to turn to. They've kind of exhausted all their options. Braddle, nowhere in this planet near the pace. Alex Marquez hasn't been good enough. Paul hasn't either. And Nakagami has not been good enough either. I mean, all he's done is injured Alex Rins and DNF Peko Banyaya out of a race. Honda have got to get it together or they're going to be in massive trouble for a long time. Yeah, I mean, if you have three relationships over a period of time and all three uh, girls break up with you, maybe you should start to consider you're the problem. Same with Honda. Is Paul really the problem? Is Alex Marcus really the problem? Is Takanakagami really the problem? Or maybe, maybe Honda's the problem. Who knows? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, I think the problem with Honda is that they're almost too proud to look at themselves and admit that they have not done this the way that they should have. I mean, guys like Alberto, Alberto Puig are really good team leads and they, they're excellent mechanics and they know what they're doing. But they're very proud and they're not proud in a good way. They're proud to the point that they will not admit where they've made a mistake and they'll try and bury themselves deeper to fix it. For the love of God, make it to the end of this season and actually recruit someone who can at least pick up the slack from where Mark is and finish a race relatively well. Because Honda are looking even worse than KTM at the moment. And that's a shocking statement to have to make. I disagree on the point that Honda is too arrogant because the fact that they radically changed the bike from last year to this year and the development of the bike has been in progress so basically i would say like 2020 they admitted okay this is not going well and we need to change the things and the fact that they have this new bike is uh is kind of proves you wrong i believe that uh, honor admitted that they uh, had made a mistake and that they can't rely on mark marcus only the problem is that they are incapable of developing a bike which is the bigger concern for me. Because when you would have said to me, like, let's say five to 10 years ago, Honda will develop a completely new bike. Will it be competitive? I would say yes, because it's Honda. They know what they do, but it isn't. I don't know what's going on, but it is fucking garbage. And if you develop a bike for like two years, because there were some tests where uh, Stefan Bradl was testing the new Honda last year, even though they still ran the old Honda, obviously. Uh, when you develop a bike for such a long period with the amount of resources and the amount of data that Honda has, and you present this piece of shit, which only worked in Qatar, yeah, then you have uh, you fucked up. And this is embarrassing for me because they admitted that they're wrong, but they can't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what more to say. I really don't. I mean, fair enough. Let's say that they have admitted that they were wrong and they've started to build a new bike, which, to be fair, they have. The problem is you haven't gone any further from my... Honda haven't gone any further from my criticism of them. You've gone for, You've made a bike that's different from the one Mark Marquez likes. And now you've made a bike that, yes, maybe other people can ride, but it breaks down half the time. What is the point? I mean, the, even when Honda moved to the side, they can't get it right. 
maybe they need personnel changes at HRC because whoever is making the decisions are not getting it right. They keep messing it up every time they try to do it. One way or the, the other, in the next few years, you have to look at life post Mark Marquez, whether that's from a crash, whether it's disease retiring, whatever it is, you have to start looking beyond the narrow focus of having a bike that only Mark can ride and no one else can ride. You've got to develop a properly stable bike and get the right riders in. If you only have one and not the other, you're not going to get anywhere. Just right now, you've got a bike that's breaking down in half the conditions, and you've got three riders that I don't think are the right riders for your team. Scrap them, get the right riders, build a proper decent bike Honda. We know you're capable of it. You gave us a V5 not that long ago. You gave us a piece of mastery, which I would like to see back, actually, but that's not the point. You're capable of building good bikes. Now get your asses back to Japan and do it. Yeah. I mean, um, moving on to Suzuki, they have a really good bike, unlike Honda. But they uh, still uh, managed to fuck it up since uh, basically every race. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember that Suzuki finished a race in the points in Le Mans. In Le Mans, for sure, every, both of them crashed. In, I don't exactly remember what Joan Mir did uh, in Mugello and in Catalonia because Joan Mir is like the most unspectacular rider ever. Mm. If he uh, if he would have worked in a no normal job, he would be uh, like an insurance salesman because he's that average. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't really know what the guy is doing, and. <laughs> Uh, to no fault of his own but he's just he isn't anywhere on my radar and yeah but i can't remember if he scored points in mugello and in uh, catalonia but let's say he did i don't know um it's still a very miserable series since the announcement announcement because they came to europe as one of the title favorites and now they're nowhere i mean takaka nakagami has his fair share of this But um, yeah, it's, it's a disaster. I feel sorry for everybody at the team because it's not really their fault, but they're basically off since the announcement. It is what it is, but they are only humans. And imagine you try to be a high-performance uh, worker in an extremely uh, competitive environment uh, where you know for a fact that next year you won't have a job. Yeah, it's a really, really shit state of mind to have to be in, it must be said. Um, to answer your pop quiz by Joan Mayer, he managed to finish fourth in Catalonia, but DNF'd at Mugello, so oh, okay. that, would be, that would completely explain why no one can remember his result. I mean, i got to be honest, I like Joan Mayer a lot. I think he's a generally stable rider, but Jesus, he is uninspiring. You know, his favorite color is probably grey. You know, he... he He, he is drab, Leo. I mean, it is a fair point to be made. Um, and the problem is he's just, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say about Joan Mayer. 
I mean, yes, he is a world champion. Uh, he did it what I call the Nicky Hayden route in winning it through consistency rather than spectacular wins. A valid method, but not the most spectacular one, probably befitting of Joan Mir. But I, I don't really know what to say about him. Um, I mean, obviously, it was unfortunate that Alex Rins couldn't race. Obviously, the pain in his hand was just too much. Understandable, but it is what it is. With Joan Mir, I just don't know. I mean, if I, I mean, if you're Joan Mir, you're racing literally for your career here because, like you said, you know, you're racing in a team that you know definitively is not going to be there next season. I mean, these are the races where you put the pedal to the metal and you push for the best results that you can. And like you said, I mean, I love the insurance salesman point. That's just cracking me up. But he, he is unspectacular. It is the truth. And it's not even that he's unspectacular where he can afford to be unspectacular. He's unspectacular where he needs to start doing something. He needs to be grabbing attention because both him and Alex Renz need a new seat for next season. And he's been so uninspiring that he's just not doing himself any favours. And I mean, finishing, you know, completely in the wilderness again is only hurting him more than anybody. It's not hurting Suzuki because they're not going to be there anymore. But he's got to start doing something because, I mean, I mean, you know, have a spectacular crash if you need to, you know, get a long lap penalty, do something, Joan, but don't just, you know, tiddle around on the bike doing nothing. We need to start seeing some sign of life here. Uh, yeah, overall, I just agree with you. I mean, the guy's a world champion, but he's not inspiring. Yeah, I mean, it speaks volume to uh, to Joan Mir that he finishes fourth in uh, his home race. <laughs> a very, very good position, but nobody remembers that he did. And uh, it was just unspectacular. He was fourth, okay, but let's say maverick finished fourth everybody would have remembered you know or mark marcus would have finished fourth or whatever you know it's he's just because owner of moto gp he's yeah as hell. yeah i mean if he would have been a position you would give him he would be sixth it's it's decent it's okay but yeah it's like basically his position give him six nobody will fire you if you finish sixth in every race but nobody will uh will sign million dollar sponsorship sponsorship deals and uh, say you're the best rider in the world you're so crazy nobody will make instagram reels uh, of your performances if donna would have allowed uh, us to to take um to take his videos uh, or their videos and uh Yeah, so actually I have a little dog right now between uh, my legs who wants to join. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, oh, yeah. At least it's more exciting than Joanne's race. Oh, oh. want to say hello? Ladies and gentlemen, the dog of the Bad Motor GP podcast. Yeah, I mean, the dog probably is more spectacular than Joanne Mia. Yeah, he looks more exciting than Joanne. At least he looks happy about it. Yeah. Okay, goodbye. I mean, uh, it's like the second dog appearance on the podcast. Now we had um, we had uh, Remy's dog Bella uh-huh. uh, when we were in Barcelona. So uh, she uh, she joined us when we talked about uh, KTM, which was uh, kind of funny. Uh, if if you haven't seen it, um, 
she's a very very good girl very very sweet go watch and it yeah now we have uh, the second peanut is now here on the podcast um yeah but um yeah back to Joan Mir just average I don't know what to say I wouldn't if I'm if I'm Repsol Honda I wouldn't sign him I would keep Paul rather because Paul at least can uh, be spectacular here yeah but let's not start this this uh, gushing because we previously talked about the silly season episode and it will come we teased it already uh, like uh, twice <laughs> now more than twice 10 times uh-huh. I believe was well, it's it's up in the air since like Jerez, basically or maybe even Portimao I don't know um, but yeah, I believe the big um, the big one was uh, the Suzuki announcement. After that, it was just up in the air because what do you do with Alex Rins and uh, Joan Mir? But uh, yeah, um, yeah, let's talk about KTM because uh, Joan Mir is unspectacular and inconsistent. Uh, Brad Binder actually is unspectacular but consistent. Uh, and consistent, yeah, uh, because he's now fifth in the world championship. How the fuck is this possible? I mean, uh, he's riding, in my opinion, the worst bike on the grid. Basically, never makes it out of Q2, and now has eighty points after um, after ten races, which means on average he finishes eighth, which is the unspectacular. Sean Mir on a worse bike. But um, yeah, he's doing incredible because he's riding a scooter, basically. He fights uh, through the pack, but Donna doesn't show it on TV, so who would have known? Um, but yeah, uh, it's a solid race. And for Oliveira too, the sad thing still is KTM almost won their last year with Miguel Oliveira. They almost beat Mark Marcus at his best track. And um, yeah, now they're nowhere to be found. There were still all time lap records being set and KTM was slower. I mean, Oliveira at least was, I believe, three tenths slower in the qualifying. Brad Binder was like two tenths faster. So basically they didn't develop anything, you know, while everybody else was getting faster. And that's the big problem with KTM that they're developing backwards uh, when everybody else is moving forward. But uh, yeah, still a solid race. You can't blame the riders for it. KTM, uh, we discussed this uh, on a, a show previously too. I don't know if the uh, frame is necessarily the best one, even though Joel Kelso on the podcast with, uh, with me uh, last week, uh, or what was, yeah, I believe I uploaded this last week. Um, he talked about the KTM uh, frame and he said it's, basically an aluminium frame where the, it looks like a steel frame go watch it and check it out so it has for sure um aluminium parts in it as well if you uh, look behind the curtain but i don't know to which extent i don't know nothing nothing basically but yeah ktm uh, they have some big problems that they need to fix and they need to find a solution asap because it's embarrassing a and B, you're losing probably Ralph Fernandez, which is one of the best 
riders to come up to MotoGP in quite some time because it's not right, ever. Look, yeah, not ever. I mean, you still have like a Mark Marquez. Uh, yeah, but he is fucking good. That's all I want to say. Um, and you're probably losing him. And yeah, once again, another uh, topic for the episode uh, about the silly season. But yeah, factory boys, solid weekend. And also the rookies. I mean, take out Stefan Brado because he's a test rider and um, doesn't necessarily belong there, in my opinion. I mean, doesn't belong uh, in the MotoGP grid as a um, full-time racer. Let him be a test rider. Okay, he's not good at that either, but let him be. Um, yeah, basically what I want to say is that uh, Remy finished last if you take out uh, Stefan Bahl, but still managed to get one point, which uh, speaks to the difficulty of the race because everybody crashed or uh, had some technical issues. And uh, Raul had actually a very, very good race. He finished 12th, I believe. Uh, he was making some good progress. And it's like we discussed with uh, Luca Marini. As a rookie, in my opinion, you don't have to be spectacular. You have to get accustomed to the, uh, to the new category. And you have to collect data for you to uh, be comfortable on the bike, to, um, to say, um, okay, I need to improve there. I need to do this better. Just collect as much data as you can for you and for your team and stay on the fucking bike. And they both did it. It's great. And yeah, I mean, they're still riding a KTM, so I wouldn't necessarily expect him or both of them to compete for top, 10th maybe sometime in a, when everything goes well but um for top five thought podiums never you could argue that marco bizecki uh could do that some kind uh, at some point in the season and he already did in mugello i mean give him a good bike and he will produce and we all know based on last season that remy and raul are head and shoulders above marco bizecki so um Yeah, but still, rookie solid, factory rather solid. I have nothing to complain there, except that KTM needs to develop a bike which actually works. But yeah, it's okay. It's a Joan Mir kind of performance, you know. Sure. You do good, but you're not spectacular. And what uh, was rather interesting that uh, Donna decided to show a little bit uh, more of the uh, coverage, uh, what happens like behind the top eight, um, which was good to see because it was nice to see somebody else. They even showed Stefan Bradl for an extended period of time on the podcast. Um, but yeah, the race in itself was so boring that Dorna decided to give them a little bit of TV time. I would like to see it when there is actually something happening at the back. I mean, like Qatar is the best example with the four-way rookie battle, which um, wasn't uh, shown at all on the broadcast or... Barcelona last uh, last time out they had a great battle towards the end uh, we don't see it at all at least a shot a little bit yeah would be nice if actually something happened there but it's not Dorna's fault I guess to an extent because they made the rules which are shitty but yeah solid uh, season for a uh, solid race for KTM um anything to add there not overly um I mean 
the KTM bike is a bit like a dinghy on wheels, um, just uninspiring and all around not that great. Credit to Brad Bender and Miguel Oliveira, though, seventh and ninth, better results than they've been having recently uh, for the most part. I mean, Brad Bender is a bit like that one person who shows up at a party and nobody knows who they are or how they got there, but they accept that they're there and they just go on about their business. I mean, he he is kind of like a meerkat. He just shows up out of nowhere and everybody just accepts it. I'm not against it because I like Brad Bender, but I mean, again, it is strange. I mean, the fact that he is fifth overall in the title standings is mind-blowing to me. Because it was you that pointed it out earlier, and I thought, you know, surely it's Jorge Martin or even, you know, someone like that, you know, maybe an Oliveira, you know, at a push. But no, it's Brad Bender, and I don't understand how he got there. I don't understand what he's doing. But fair enough, it is what it is. As for Messrs. Gardner and Fernandez, I think they're doing about as good as they can. Yes, Remy finished last. But it's a point, you know, it is something. And he stayed on his bike, which is more than could be said for many riders more experienced than him in tougher conditions as well. So I think they both deserve a lot of credit. Raul deserves a lot of credit, four points. I mean, he was uh, he was about two and a half seconds off Marco Bizzacchi, who is a great rider. Um, and I think they both deserve a lot of credit. Um, nothing more really to add. Yeah, so um, the whole racing was boring uh, i touched on it briefly um i actually had some hope then that we could uh, get a nice race at the saxon ring because mark marcus wasn't there uh, to dominate uh, but it still was uh, as boring as it was uh, with him so this was rather disappointing especially after the banging moto 2 race so, um, yeah, I had uh, some time today to fill out the survey. I put it on my Instagram story for everybody who uh, who would like to read it. It should be up there until like tomorrow afternoon or whatever. Yeah, or midday. I don't know. It's just up there. The yeah, just look at it. Maybe I'll put it. Maybe I'll put in my story highlight. I don't know. Yeah, but basically the point uh, of it that... Um, the racing is basically killed. We have a very competitive grid where we can't uh, see overtakes because of the front tire. I mean, yes, it's part, um, yes, it's part uh, winglets, it's part uh, front and rear right devices. Okay, I get that. Uh, but also Michelin, what the fuck? Please develop a bike uh, or not a bike, I'm sorry. Please develop uh, a tire which works above uh, 30 degrees uh, temperature and which works when you're following another rider. This would be great. But uh, yeah, I would like to see uh, somebody uh, pulling up with a flex and flexing all the winglets down because uh, it gets rather annoying by uh, by now. Um, I'm... I'm a big racing fan. I watched Formula One as a lot as a kid. I mean, I grew up uh, with uh, with uh, Sebastian Vettel basically dominating, and uh, I remember one of the first seasons I can truly remember was like the 2006 or five season where Fernando Alonso beat uh, Michael Schumacher was a good one, but. Um, yeah, I lost interest in the sport because uh, it's fucking boring. 
I'll, I watched a little bit uh, during the pandemic because uh, there was nothing on there. But generally, I'm kind of interested in uh, Formula One, but not anymore because it's just uh, it's not my cup of tea to see uh, no overtakes. And yeah, but long story short, uh, I would uh, I would hope that MotoGP doesn't turn into Formula One because even Formula One uh, realized that they have a problem and change regulations and MotoGP needs to do this too because it's it's not unwatchable it's still MotoGP you get excited but uh, try to uh, convince like a friend of yours to watch a MotoGP race with you say hey man I got this uh, cool new sport and um, you should definitely watch it come over and then you see the Sachsenring race I mean if you're lucky you get to see a funny uh, Moto3 race where there's absolute carnage or a Moto2 race like today, which was amazing because motorcycle racing in general has the potential to be super exciting, but yet MotoGP isn't at the moment, which is a big problem for me. And uh, like when you want to get uh, your uh, friends to uh, to watch the UFC, it's pretty easy to convince them because I did it with my girlfriend who has no... I know where uh, you're going with this. I know where yeah. you're going with this. Yeah, I mean... Uh, she has no background in uh, in martial arts or whatever. So, but I like to watch it. So she watched it a couple of times with me, and it's uh, one of uh, one of our favorite uh, things to do. We still get to watch the fight night from yesterday. Um, oh fucking but, epic, by the way. Yeah, was it? So please, oh. no, please no spoilers. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but just that you will love it. That's all okay. I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, so basically the point I'm making is if you want to get your friends to watch uh, the UFC, you show them a fight like Glover Teixeira versus uh, Yiri Potsdingsbums. Prohaska? Yeah, you know. Um, or like, <laughs> or like um, the first uh, Wei Li versus Joanna there's or the first Usman versus Kevin there's so many uh, amazing fights you see spectacular knockouts you see uh, spectacular submissions you see very high class fighting and in MotoGP you basically see high class racing yes because they're the best in the world but to me as a fan I don't fucking care if they lap the Saxon ring in 119 Point seven or in one twenty three point four, I want to see exciting races. And there was a story that the MotoGP or a video that the MotoGP social media team put up, where uh, Sete Gibernau and uh, Valentino Rossi battled in the last lap for the race win, and there were like three overtakes in the last uh, two corners or something like this. This is what I want to see. I don't care if they're uh, five seconds faster or slower per lap. I rather watch Moto3 by at this point than uh, MotoGP, which is a big problem. And I mean, I still watch it because I grew up with watching MotoGP. I basically uh, never done anything differently in my life. Uh, I got through the whole uh, 800cc era, so I will get uh, through this too. But uh, yeah, the point I'm making is that it's very difficult A, to attract new fans and B, to keep... Uh, to keep uh, existing fans if you uh, put like snoozes um, up like today which is a big problem so please do something about it Dorna 
Yeah, um, it's a very interesting topic, uh, I have to say. And I think Marco Melandri was involved in that race you're talking about as well with Gibernau and Rossi. I believe it wrong. was uh, 2003. Rossi was still on the on the Honda, I believe, if, oh, if I remember oh, correctly. I, and I think it, I'm thinking of a different one then. Yeah, oh, fair enough. yeah, but the point that you're making overall is incredibly valid, and I do agree with you. And I would like to refer the people who watch this show to my previous argument from a few episodes ago. Take all the funding for aero development, wings, winglets, all that ugly crap. Throw it out the window and put it into having different tire manufacturers. I understand the technological development is a part of life. It is what it is and you can't hold it off forever. But I don't want fighter jets on the track that can't overtake each other because then it becomes F1 where whoever qualifies on pole wins the race, whoever qualifies second finishes second and so on and so forth. And it becomes boring and it becomes dull. There has to be some balance between technological development and actual exciting racing. Because if we think about, you know, the old Yamaha M1 of Rossi and Lorenzo, for example, Yes, they were at the cutting edge of technology for that time. Of course they were. But they didn't have scoops in them that military fighter jets have. And it was brilliant and it was fun to watch because the bikes were all equal to some degree. Admittedly, you had different tire manufacturers at that point as well. But that just furthers the argument for it. I have said the three Bs since the beginning of the season. Bring back Bridgestone. I want Bridgestone tires back in MotoGP. And Leo, by God, I'm not going to rest until it happens because I hate these Michelin tires so much. I mean, the fact that you, Michelin are kind of like Honda, the fact that you have a piece of equipment that doesn't work above a certain temperature is abominable. And they get a lot of funding from Dorna to be the official tire manufacturer of MotoGP. Get your heads out of your collective asses and get a tire that works or allow other manufacturers. This is what I want to see. Now, whether you can actually get them, maybe that's a different story. Maybe that's much harder. But I would love to see the likes of Bridgestone, Pirelli, Continental, you know, the big tire companies come in and provide alternatives. I don't like only having one manufacturer because if they're good, they're great, fair enough. But if it's Michelin, the tires are awful. They don't last and everybody's having to go through all these different compounds just to find a tire that doesn't end up like ice by the end of the race. It's not good enough, in my opinion. I really don't think it is. And it's a big contributor to the issue that you're talking about when it comes to racing. Bring back other tire manufacturers. This is my solution. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult uh, topic with these, topic with these um, tire manufacturers because on one hand, yes, you have... Uh, competitors uh, who maybe push each other to develop a better tire um, maybe you get different characteristics like we get with the bikes now that at some tracks maybe let's say a Dunlop tire works better or, and on the other um, tracks a Bridgestone works better and then on the next Michelin works better and then on the next uh, Pirelli but you have the risk that you have like a KTM tire manufacturer there who works nowhere And it's just basically a piece of shit. So uh, you're you're equaling the playing field because you say, okay, you have one tire manufacturer for everybody, which means that everybody can uh, have like the same base and can develop the bike around the tires. And it's no secret that 
you don't have to develop a fast bike you have to um have to develop a bike for the tires right now i love the yamaha yeah i mean uh it's no secret but there's like a valid argument for having one tire manufacturer like there is a valid argument for having uh, uh spec electronics or uh, whatever you know they basically have spec brakes they basically have spec suspensions because i don't i don't know would be interesting to know if Ölins uh, develops a different suspension for Ducati as for uh, Suzuki or for Yamaha. I would assume, but I don't know. Would be interesting to know. Um, but yeah, or like Brembo, have do they have a different brake for the Honda than the Yamaha or is it everybody has the same brakes? So there's benefits to having spec tires as well. Um, but I can see the criticism But I don't necessarily know if a second time manufacturer would have solved the problem because you still have these stupid winglets. You still would have had uh, those uh, right height devices who make it more difficult, A, to overtake and B, to, um, to keep tire temperatures at a level where you can operate. But yeah, also electronics, I would like to keep the ones who are relevant for safety of course uh riding a motor gp bike without traction control would be bonkers but uh get rid of all the uh all the electronics which isn't uh necessarily for necessary uh, for safety to make the rider have a bigger impact too i want to see people like going maybe a little bit wide here uh, having different lines having to wrestle the bike those kinds uh of moments are very spectacular and satisfying to watch and um they bring the fields i believe more into a human state because when everybody is operating like at peak what is physically possible then it's difficult to make a difference and it's difficult to overtake because let's take away the winglets let's take away the writer device let's take away the ties but if everybody is extremely good at what they do like over racing over racing is like the most basic shit ever you just press the gas and go around in a circle but because it's so easy everybody can do it and therefore it gets really close to make it dif uh, really difficult to make a difference and it's really close yeah you have slipstream you don't have to tell me that but take this as an example uh, like if everybody is operating at such a high level and everything is defined by such small margins, small margins, then it's difficult to have entertaining races. It's difficult to have spectacular moments, spectacular overtakes. I mean, um, like Pedro did last uh, uh, last year in uh, Qatar, where he went uh, from the pit lane to the uh, to the um, to the race victory. It's this is what I want to see, and this is made possible by less electronics. No winglets, no right-hand devices in Moto3, and the slipstream effect is much greater, yes, but you know where I'm trying to get with my point, that it would be interesting to make let the rider make more of a difference, which would be achieved through uh, uh, less electronics, less um, aero, less uh, right-hand devices, And make it a little bit more fun. Add a little bit of spice there, you know?
Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. I think losing that individual importance would be equally as detrimental. So, yeah, I agree. Also, I want to see races where everybody can go full gas for, in this case, uh, 30 laps. Uh, I don't need to have uh, like different engine mappings to manage the um, manage the fuel consumption. I don't need to have different engine mappings to manage the tire um, tire wear. I don't need to have people riding have to having to ride conservative uh, to um, preserve tires. I don't need to see this. I want to see 24 of the best riders uh, and Stefan Brader going uh, going at it at uh, 100% battling the fuck out of it. Basically, Moto3. Basically, Moto3, Moto3 is everything I want. And um, they don't have to wear, um, worry about tires. They don't have to worry about fuel because they don't have to worry about electronics. They just get on the bike and it's absolute carnage and I love it. I want to see it. I want to see more of it. And um, yeah, I would like uh, I would like to get my MotoGP races back, which are uh, fascinating to watch, which are interesting. Like, I believe it was 2018 in Assen where everybody was basically on par and uh, yeah, you know, one of the best races. I want to see stuff like this. You know, um, 2000 and what year was it at Phillip Island? Uh, it was 15. Yeah. Yeah. 15. Races like that. I mean, basically yeah. steroid infused Moto 3. Yeah. Give us Could, steroid infused Moto 3. Yeah. Could also be us in 2016. I don't remember. But yeah, all I want to say, I want to see closer racing with a lot of overtakes, a lot of, a uh, lot of spectacular things happen, but still safely. I don't, uh, I don't need to see uh, people get injured or uh, worse, uh, like on a regular basis. No, so they have to be like this, uh, this fine margin. Okay, this is spectacular. This is what we want to encourage. And this is dangerous. We want to get rid of this. And you will never get motorcycle racing, which is 100% safe. I get that. But at least try your best, you know, and um, back to the topic, MotoGP has a problem with uh, boring races and they need to fix it. And this is my opinion on how to achieve it. I would rather watch like uh, buy seven superbikes, like buy Ducati, Aprilia, Honda, yada, 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 uh, put slicks on them and race with them. I would rather see this if it's competitive than a MotoGP bike who is, uh, which is 10 seconds faster, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crazy different things you could do to make it better. Um, I mean, if it were possible, it'd be brilliant to put a chimp on a MotoGP bike and put Fabio Quartararo in a mini moto and see who would win. I'd pay to watch that. <laughs> I mean, I've seen dogs ride skateboards, so uh, it shouldn't be entirely impossible. <laughs> but Just yeah. trying to get it to work out the controls and everything, the yeah. ride has device. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, I would like to talk to, about uh, Moto2 a little because it was take out Rolf Fernandez like um but the battle for P2 was absolutely amazing oh. um uh, this is what I want to see you know basically yeah absolutely it was brilliant from beginning to end it really really was um I thought Augusto Fernandez was brilliant uh, he checked out pretty early on to be fair and he just didn't let, like letting go 
But that battle for P2 was sensational uh, all race. Um, obviously, our Lord and Saviour himself, Lord Pedro Acosta, got P2. Brilliant result. Sam Lowe's had a great race. He got P3. And then with the likes of Fermin Aldeguer, who were coming in and pushing at the end as well, which was, of course, equally as great to see. And all around, it was a really great race, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, the first 10 laps were absolutely amazing. Raul yes. Fernandez fought from, I believe, fourth or fifth or something along to the front where he overtook three dudes in the Omega where basically you don't overtake. But it was spectacular and nice for him. Um, and uh, Pedro, he was a motherfucker on the brakes. Ooh. It seemed like he had no grip at all towards the end because the last 10 laps again were pretty interesting. The middle part was kind of quiet, I would say. Yeah. And um, yeah, but uh, it got close towards the end. Pedro seemed to have no grip at all and uh, managed to overtake uh, Sam Laws a couple of times uh, back with uh, his superior braking position. It was also very interesting that he stayed on the main straight uh, much further to the right than everybody else because he is so good at attacking the corners like in a triangle way, you know? And um, yeah, also Aki Ayo uh, said that he struggles a little bit in hotter conditions and uh, um, he also... Uh, has like some problems still with the fast flowing corners where he's really good into those triangles but uh, or not triangles in his tighter corners where you have to ride more in a triangle way than have to have so a like flowing... a 90 degree angle yeah yeah you know um, break deep into the corners turn the bike and accelerate out of there he's very good there but he has some problems uh, in faster corners and in the Saxon ring basically there are only faster corners which shows that he improves a lot which is important he's He's still a rookie, don't forget this. Uh, but he's doing very good. He took some uh, older riders, much more experienced riders to school this season. And he will do it again. And next year, probably, he will take everybody to school. Um, but yeah, very, very entertaining. Uh, what was kind of sad that Vietti uh, threw, the, threw the thing away. I mean, um, Canet, he was very fast despite his injury. Kudos to him. He still was better than like I don't know if he finished ahead of Ayagura, but he still was better than basically uh, all of his championship contenders. And now uh, Ralph Hernandez uh, entered the title uh, picture, which uh, which uh, could be uh, very, very interesting. But yeah, all I'm uh, trying to say is uh, a little bit sad for Vietti. It feels like he doesn't want to win a championship, you know? But nobody does at the moment, which makes it exciting again. So, uh, yeah. And also at the last point, I would uh, like to give a shout out to Master Shota. He uh, finished P4 in his uh, in his home GP and, yeah, spectacular lives. What do we want to see more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where to start? Um, I guess I'll start with Marcel Schroeder. Brilliant weekends. Had a spectacular finish. He pushed Sam Lowe's and Pedro Acosta all the way. Had a great weekend. Um, just briefly before I go on to everybody else, that point you made about Pedro Acosta sticking much more onto the right-hand side of the straight, the other advantage that has for Pedro is that nobody can slipstream off of him on the straight. 
because nobody can follow that same racing line. So what Pedro is doing is actually creating his own angle of attack for those corners that nobody else can use. Really clever, Pedro. I see what you're doing. That is why you are Pitley and Pedro, because you are the best. You are the best at doing this. You're the only one that can do this. So shout out Pedro Acosta. As for the sort of slightly middle of the pack, um, Aaron Cannot had a good race. Uh, obviously, he's still recovering from that car crash. Thankfully, he's okay. Um, and he had a good weekend. Um, Iagora did finish above him. He finished in P8, um, Cannot in P9. But overall, still a really good weekend for Cannot. He'll take that mostly. And one person who I was disappointed in was Joe Roberts, actually. Um, Joe had a good weekend. At the beginning of the race, he was as high as P5, and he ended up dropping back to P13. Um, he will be disappointed with that. He would have expected a lot more from the Saxon ring, but it is what it is. He, he'll move on to the next race, and overall, the entire race was just really, really good. Um, it's hard to say much more in this, but it was just a fantastic race. It's more of what we want to see. Yeah, Um I believe I mistakenly said Raul Fernandez. Obviously, I made, uh, I mean, Augusto Fernandez. It gets kind of confusing and it's late. So, There's too many Fernandez is right. Yeah. Let's have a different name here. Like every, everybody's the same who's, uh, who's called Fernandez. So, <laughs> yeah, no, but um, first of all, Aaron Canet uh, made a crucial mistake, which is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he let his girlfriend drive, which is always uh, a big risk. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no. We're in dangerous territory here, and I'm... <laughs> no, Reverse. just kidding. Just kidding, of course. Um, yeah. Um, I believe it's getting a little late, so I would like to uh, jump quickly to uh, to Moto Three. Yeah, absolutely. I believe Moto Two, we covered it. It should be interesting in Assen, and then uh, the championship uh, seems to be wide open uh, for the second half of the season. Yeah. Uh, will be interesting. Um, yeah, regarding um, Moto3, it's uh, yeah, not a typical Moto3 race. wasn't necessarily uh, the most entertaining one compared with previous races. But uh, I guess this is due to the track. We've seen this a couple of times uh, at the Saxon Ring because it's just not a slipstream track and you can uh, break away quite easily, you know. Um but uh, Isan Guevara, take a bow, very, very good. He, this motherfucker can race. I didn't pick him uh, as my championship favorite uh, preseason for no reason. He is very, very good. And uh, also, like Dennis Foggia, managed to recover a little bit, if you, uh, if you uh, like so, because um, he had a series of bad luck in Mugello he crashed on a tear off in Catalonia he uh, he had some chain uh, problems but it's good to see him back and it's it was a nice battle between him and uh, him and Sergio Garcia so uh, I would hope that he manages to have an equally strong ending to the season as he had last year because uh, when or if he does he uh, will have something to say in the championship. And uh, also, I believe Aston will be a favorable track for the Honda because it's more of a flowing type bike, which suits the track. And I thought uh, because of this that he uh, will win uh, in Germany. I thought that 
that the Honda is more suitable to the track. And I, uh, I thought that Dennis Foggia will make a Dennis the Menace comeback. But yeah, he kind of did. But Isa was just better, which is fine. But yeah, a very, very uh, entertaining, yet not the typical Moto3 race. But uh, yeah. Yeah, this wasn't the carnage episode that you normally see with Moto3, but no less entertaining, in my opinion. I mean, Izan Guevara is a special talent. I mean, to dominate, dominating any motorcycle race is impressive, but dominating a Moto3 race where you never see domination is just unbelievably impressive. Credit to him, did a brilliant job. Dennis Foggia came back to get a very good second. Um Sergio, I mean, Gas Gas are just dominating everybody. Sergio Garcia got another podium. That'll help his title challenge a lot. And then we have Japanese representation in fourth and fifth, Sasaki and Suzuki. Uh, they did a good job. And all around, it was just a really, really good race. Uh, Daniel Holgado, brilliant P6. Uh, Adrian Fernandez in eighth. Um, just some really good performances. And yeah, once again, Moto3 does not disappoint. Yeah, um, Carlos Tatai played a little bit of bowling. He reminded me of Takanakagami or David Munoz oh uh, did a similar uh, move in the Red Bull Rookies Cup uh, race last year where he took it was towards the end, to be fair, but he took out like everybody except one into turn one. So, um, yeah, I'm excited a little bit to see what race direction will do because you literally can compare uh this move with takas so it would be uh nice to see an explanation if they penalize him i don't know if they already did i don't know uh, if they didn't so basically i know nothing um as usual but uh yeah and also uh sad for joel kelso he crashed out in the leading group and uh, he was actually in a decent position um maybe it's just uh It's just uh, bringing bad luck to make the podcast with me because uh, last time when uh, when I made the uh, podcast with uh, Remy, literally on the next day, he broke his wrist uh, at motos- motocross training uh, at Rocco's Ranch. And um, now uh, <laughs> Joel Kerzo crashed uh, immediately after recording the podcast with me. So maybe there's uh, some kind of problem there. Maybe I should... Uh, start to make a podcast with uh yeah darren binder or something but he will crash either way so it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah but um sad to see um it was a was a little bit of a difficult situation because i couldn't judge the crash so i went back to the video pass and selected the helicopter view to get a view of and i knew he was battling with david munoz and As everybody knows who follows Junior GP a little bit, there were some tricky situations uh, with David Munoz uh, to be, uh, yeah, to be quite nice to him. Let's say he's a rather dangerous rider in many uh, situations, um, and I was ready to uh, to go on a rant, but uh, yeah, Joel crashed on by himself. But it's good to see uh, him making progress. He's a rookie, and he went to Germany and Aachen last year as a as a wildcard rider. So it's good to see uh, that he makes this progress. It's good to uh, see him fighting at the top. 
uh, of the class right now where he on the track where he has like a little bit of more of experience. I mean, crashes happen, sucks, but take away the positives and uh, move on. So, um, yeah, overall, a decent weekend for him. I'm glad he's not hurt as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, yeah. We should really start inviting Jorge Lorenzo and Mark Marquez onto the podcast. We need an Uno reverse card and fortune, and maybe that's yeah. the way it's good. Um, no, I feel sorry for Joel Kelso. He looked really promising most of the weekend. Just unfortunate. It's one of those things, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, overall, Moto3, I was really happy with. It delivered really well again, just in a different way. Um, maybe that's the sign of a real superstar being born in Isan Guevara. He, maybe he's like um, that famous sword, um, like the Knights of the Round Table sword. He who can dominate a Moto3 race will be a world champion. Maybe this is the prophecy. Maybe Isan Guevara is the prophet we've been waiting for. Um, but yeah, it was a great race overall. I have no complaints with it. Apart from Carlos Tata, you dickhead, what were you doing? Yeah, I mean, the spot uh, of the chosen one is already taken by Lord Pedro himself. And with that, uh, I would... Um come to an end with the podcast it's getting late here i mean we have oh it's uh 10 minutes before uh 11 p.m so time to go to bed uh, because uh, tomorrow is work again so i have to get up early yeah but um enjoyed the races more or less moto 2 and moto 3 more than moto gp but still a great episode love to talk to you and uh let's see how we um how we do it in Assen because uh, obviously I will be there attending the races live. So should be possible to make it Sunday because it's not that uh, far away. But yeah, if not Monday. So I'll be excited because um, I'm sitting at the final chicane. So there should be a lot of carnage there. <laughs> and we have David Munoz. So everything is possible. Oh, and well, that's well, it's written then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, glad to talk to you and uh, goodbye. See you next week. Amazing. Thank you, everybody, for watching once again. Pleasure to talk to you, Leo. And I will see you on the other side of the Dutch Grand Prix. Goodbye.